Good morning, church. It's always such a privilege just to be able to, to, to share God's message. So I'm just, I'm going to jump straight in. So for all those that uh, have been part of, of Outlook and for those that are starting, we are busy or we are part of a journey where we're talking about, you know, guardians of the gospel. And just the heart of it, you know, our anchor scripture is Romans 1, um, verse 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. And we believe that if we're not careful, if we, don't, if we don't live out the gospel the way it's supposed to, if we don't teach the gospel it's supposed to, what's going to happen is the power that the gospel has, the gospel itself won't lose the power, but then our lives can actually could be a representation of not having that gospel power in our lives. So we feel and we believe that we need to understand what are the things that you know, we need to look out for to make sure that we keep the gospel as pure as it's supposed to be. So we are in part six this week, and just to do a little bit of a recap, the first week that we did, we spoke about the church of Ephesus, and then there were two things there where what would happen is Christ would basically evaluate this church, and then after evaluating this church, he would give them an instruction in terms of, this is what I've seen, so this is what you need to do. So in terms of Ephesus, what he did was, Jesus said there, you know, you guys have sound teaching, you've got good theology, but the problem is you lost your first love. And then the instruction that he told the church of Ephesus was, do what you did at first. And then I'm sure some of us or most of us will relate that when we were young Christians, when we came to Christ, our passion was all the way here, you know, but the works was all the way down here. Then if you're not careful, what happens is works start to increase, but then our passion starts to decrease. So Christ was reminding them that, hey, do what you did at first. Then the second church after Ephesus was the church of Smyrna. And the evaluation that Christ there said, he said, you guys are afflicted. You guys are poor, but you are spiritually rich. And then the instruction that, or the, 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 the advice that Jesus gave the church was stay or be faithful. And he even said it. He said, be faithful. And some of you actually have to be faithful till a point of death. That was quite a specific letter to the church of Smyrna. Then the next church that we looked at was the church of Pergamum. And basically the evaluation there was they tolerated immorality, they tolerated idolatry. It was just not going on. And Jesus there gives them uh, this instruction that you guys have to repent. The next church that we looked at was the church of Thyatira. And similar to the church of Pergamum, similarly, they tolerated immorality. And it was just, you know, they had that spirit of Jezebel in their church. And then Jesus tells them that judgment is coming. Therefore, you guys also need to repent. And then the last church that Brent spoke about last week was the church of Sardis. And then basically in this church, what had happened was they had a reputation that they were alive. But Jesus says, but you're dead. I mean, that's, that's not a letter I'd love to hear. I mean, you have this reputation that you're alive but actually you're dead on the inside. And Jesus tells them, you guys need to repent and strengthen what remains. So this morning we're going to be looking at the church of Philadelphia and we're going to be reading from Revelation 3, verse 7 to 11. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. 
I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial uh, that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. So basically this church, or if, if you not sure geographically where these churches are situated, these churches are all located in, in a place where we now call um, Turkey. But then the interesting thing about this church here is Jesus found no error, no fault with this church. That was quite interesting about this one particular church. Jesus could not say anything bad about this church. And he tells them, just hold on, continue to do what you guys are doing. So the point of this morning is I just want to spend a couple of minutes and just, I just want us as a church to understand what is it that these guys did right. And I'm just trusting and hoping that we can basically learn from this church. So the first thing or the first place we start off is Jesus always introduces each letter with the revelation of who he is. And this revelation basically helps us understand the context or the, the gist of the letter. So the revelation that Jesus gives, he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So what does that mean? If we study the word holy, if we read Isaiah 6, verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this verse, is, this verse was basically highlighting that God is holy. And then in John 6, uh, verse 67 to 69, it says, you do, not wa- you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Revelation 4 verse 8 says, Holy, 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 once again, is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So basically, holiness is a divine title. And if you basically have to define what holiness is, holiness simply means to be, to be separate or to be set apart. I think most of us have used this term normally in a bad way, where, for example, if you're doing dodge stuff and your friend is like, hey, I don't want to do that, we normally say, ah, stop acting holy. Why? That person is saying, I want to be set apart from what you guys are doing. So basically, holiness is being set apart, and God is holy because he is set apart from us because he does not have sin, he is perfect, he is God, and basically, he is spotless. So basically, holiness shows, once again, that this is a divine title. And when they use the word true, in this context, all they meant was 
uh, Jesus or yeah, Jesus is basically genuine. Jesus is real. That's what they meant in terms of holy and in terms of true. And then when they say, who holds the key of David? Basically here, the key represents authority. In Isaiah 22, verse 20 to 22, it says, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be the father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So the context of Isaiah is we've got this one servant called Eliakim. And basically he's given the keys of the house of David. So simply means he's been given or stewardship to basically have access to all the riches and all the wonders of the palace of the house of David. Jesus uses the same analogy to say, yes, you guys have an understanding that if you have the house keys of David, you've got access to riches. But guess what? I don't only just have access to riches. I have the keys to unlock heaven and hell. Basically, Jesus has the authority to open doors and to also shut doors. Um, if you remember in Matthew 25, there's a parable of, of, uh, of the ten virgin girls. And what we see there is this ten young ladies basically were going to see the bridegroom. And then the Bible tells us that five of them carried oil and the other five didn't. And then what happened was the bridegroom got late, so the guys fell asleep. And as they fell asleep, there was this loud voice that came and the voice was saying, be ready, the bridegroom is coming. So the guys that did not have the extra oil woke up and said, could you please share a bit of oil? And the other guy said, no, we can't give you our oil because if we share with you, we won't have enough for ourselves. How about you go next door, go get some oil, and then you'll be good to go. When the guys left, the bridegroom came. The door was open. Five went in while the other five were still trying to buy oil. When they came back, they said, hey, we want to come back. And this is what the Lord said. The Lord said, truly, I do not know you. The door was shut on them. So Jesus is giving them, or is making them understand that I have the authority to open heaven and I also have the authority to close that door. So basically, this is a revelation of Jesus where he says he is holy, he is true, and he has got the key to the house of David. Why is this important to understand this revelation? Well, understand, if someone who is holy knows no sin, does not tolerate sin, who is true, who is genuine, who is God, who has authority to open heaven, comes to your church and says, you're doing good. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. I mean, I was just trying to explain this in normal English and the best example I could think of is if you're writing a, a, a tough exam and you're sitting there and you're writing the exam and it, it's quite hard and then the moderator just walks past your table and you know if the moderator stands more than four seconds, whatever you're writing is nonsense. Just, just let it go. Just move on. However, if you're writing a tough exam and the moderator looks at your paper and just looks at you 
and then just walks away. You know you're on the right track. So no matter how hard that exam is, you are on the right track. Similarly, when, 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 when they got this revelation of who Jesus is, and as this letter was written, and they realized that, wow, Jesus finds no fault in our church, that was such a massive encouragement for this church. So there's basically two things that I believe we can learn from this church. So the first thing we see that, um, we see in verse 8, it says, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What does that mean? As a church, we need to acknowledge and we need to understand that every ministry opportunity that we have in the church has been opened by Jesus Christ. Every ministry opportunity that we have in the church has been opened by Jesus Christ. So similarly, every ministry opportunities that we actually don't have or we don't get to do was closed or the door was shut by Jesus Christ. Colossians 4 verse 3 says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And then Acts 14 verse 27, it says, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So basically, the church of Philadelphia was positioned in a very nice area where for people to go inland to go to Asia, they had to go through this church of Philadelphia. And Christ is saying, guys, I have opened up a door for you. I've opened up a, an amazing ministry where for people to go inland, they go through your church. So guess what? If you guys share the gospel, if you guys show them Christ, they're able to take Christ with them as they go through or to the various areas in Asia. So basically, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So Jesus is the author of all our ministry opportunities. That's the first thing that we take um, from this church. And the second thing that we learn from this church, and this is something that I want to spend a little bit of time in because this is the most important. We see this in verse 8 and verse 10. So verse 8 says, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The key word that we see there is the word kept in verse 8. And if you look at verse 10, it says, Since you have, once again, kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come. So basically, the word kept means to hold on to something or to retain something or to keep or to have. So basically, we see how the key to why Jesus does not condemn this church the key or the reason why Jesus finds this church blameless is because they kept his word. They kept his command. And if I just summarize those two sentences, kept his word, kept his command, simply means this church was an obedient church. That's simply what it means. This church was an obedient church. John 14 verse 23 to 24 says, um, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. I love that. I'm just going to read that again. It's such a powerful verse. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, 
and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. This, this words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So basically the big idea is if you say you love Jesus, but you don't obey him, we're just fooling ourselves. That's, that's simple. There's, there's no gray area. It's black and white. If we claim that we love Jesus Christ, but we do not obey his commandments, we do not obey his words, we simply are just lying to ourselves. So the question is then, what does it look like to basically obey his word? What does it look like to obey his commandment? Well, firstly, the, the Bible is full of a lot of um, words and teachings and you know, preaching from Jesus. But the specific one I want to focus on when it comes to being obedient to the word of Christ, I want to look at just that area of the Sermon in the Mount in the Bible. So if some of you have seen the Sermon in the Mount, this is verses, I think, 5 to 7 or 5 to 8, somewhere there. And just some of the, some of the um, things that Jesus says, that he talks about, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he says, let your good deeds shine so that people can see them and glorify your Father in heaven. Those are some of the words that Jesus says. Another sermon there is, is um, the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches the disciples how to, how to pray. And he says, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in private will then reward you. And the silent inference there is, it's not just about what you pray. It's the fact that when you pray, your Father in heaven actually sees you. That, that's, that's encouraging, that when you pray, you're not just talking to some mythical person, you're praying to someone that actually sees you. Those are some of the words that Jesus says. Another sermon there was one way, I think it's in Matthew 6, where he talks about, don't worry about what you're going to eat. And there's this beautiful anchor verse that's like a life verse for me, which is Matthew 6.33. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you. And another sermon in the Sermon on the Mount is the one where he talks about asking you receive, keep knocking, and the door will be open. What's the point? What's the point with the words that Jesus says? Well, if you read the Sermon on the Mount from 5 to verse 8, how Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount is the key to why the church in Philadelphia was the way they were. So Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount and he says, anyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. Anyone who hears these words and put them into practice is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. So it's not just enough to just hear the words of Christ and then we move on. We need to hear the words and we need to put them into practice. And when we do that, basically we are like a person that who has built his house on a rock. And we see why Jesus commands this church because as they face trial, as they face tribulation, because they had built their life on the rock, they remained obedient to whatever the world was able to throw at them. And then secondly, when we look at being obedient to Christ's command, I mean, the biggest commandment that Christ um, gave, to, gave to all of us is basically two. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul. And love God with all your mind. And equally so, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are the two biggest commandments that we've been given. So basically, when we live our lives where we're obedient to the word, when we live our lives where we love God with all our hearts and we love people around us, we find ourselves in a place where we are doing what the Philadelphian church do. 
But similarly, also Jesus Christ gives us encouragement because it's easy to read this thing and think, oh, it's going to be so easy to do this. But Jesus in Matthew, um, Matthew 10, 22 says, but you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And another quite encouraging scripture is John 15. He says, 15 verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So church, we are called to live a life of obedience, but also understand that it's not going to be easy, and, but we are called to be obedient nonetheless. And just to go a little bit deeper with this word obedience, when I was reading uh, the Great Commission, I found a word that for, for some funny reason, I've never read that verse like I did this week. So if we look at uh, Matthew, Matthew 28, uh, verse 19 to 20, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. I used to always read this as teach them to obey, but I love how the NIV says teaching them. We're seeing something that is continuous. So basically the question that I would want you guys to wrestle with, the question that I've been wrestling with is are we continuously obedient to the word? Are we continuously obedient to his command? Or are we just a one-hit wonder? That is just a question that I want you guys to really wrestle with. Are we continuously obedient to his word? Are we continuously obedient to his commandments? Basically, this was a continuous obedience, and continuous obedience is what pleases our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Continuous obedience is what pleases our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Basically, continue to be obedient. Continue to love me so that you do not lose your crown. Just to clarify that part of losing crown, you basically cannot lose your salvation, but we see how you can actually lose um, your reward. So basically the big idea, true obedience, even though it might look weak or little, will do more good than good intentions itself. So just to recap, Jesus is the author of ministry opportunities and continuous obedience pleases our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then I can't remember who actually said this, but they said, when opportunity knocks, it looks like obedience. When opportunity knocks, it looks like obedience. Just to give you an example, if we look at, we, earlier on we read about how Jesus said he's got the key to David. If we had to look at the opportunity that David had, the opportunity did not start when David saw Goliath and he decided he was going to fight him, and then he eventually became king. That's not when the opportunity started knocking. The opportunity actually started knocking the day his dad said, son, your brothers are at war, take bread to them. And now he had to make a decision, do I take bread to these guys or do I tend my sheep? The Bible says he had to find another shepherd to tend or to look after his sheep so that he can actually do or be obedient to what his father has said. That was when the opportunity knocked in David's life. Another example, if I think of uh, Joseph, um, we see how basically he was a guy where his brothers hated him. I mean, he was dad's favorite son. His brothers wanted to kill him. They threw him in a ditch, and then he eventually got sold into slavery 
in Egypt. And then the door of opportunity for Joseph was when he was working in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife, you know, wanted to, to seduce him. But the window of opportunity for David was when he stood firm and he said, I will not do what you want me to do because if I do it, I'm, I'm sinning against God. I'm not sinning against your husband. I couldn't really care less about your husband. I care about what my God thinks. That was his window of opportunity. That was his window of, yeah, that was his window of opportunity. And we see how he ended up going to jail. But the jail eventually became a platform that allowed him to meet a guy who would eventually know a guy, and that guy was basically a pharaoh. And when Pharaoh was struggling with dreams, the guy that, the guy that Joseph met in the jail was able to say, hey, I remember when I was in jail, there was a guy that was able to interpret dreams. Hey, let's get him. Joseph was able to interpret the dream, and we see how he was given the second highest position in Egypt. So basically, when opportunity knocks, it looks like obedience. And the reality is for you and I, at the end of the day, obedience in our lives will probably be not the same. For some of you, an act of obedience means walking into the door that Christ has opened. And some of you, obedience actually looks like walking away from the door that Christ has basically closed. And then lastly, we see how, you know, what are the promises of those that are victorious? What are the promises of those that basically live a life of obedience? From verse 11, the Bible says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. What does that mean? There's basically four beautiful promises that we see for people that live lives of obedience. The first one says, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So basically... In that area, what would happen is if you're quite an important person, they will erect a pillar there, and then they would put your name there. That's, that's what it meant. But Jesus, or God, yeah, Jesus is saying, similarly in heaven, I will erect a pillar, and the pillar will have your name. But the pillar, unlike all the pillars we've seen in the world, where natural disasters come or wars come, and then they eventually fall down, he's saying, but yours will stay in heaven forever. That's the first promise. The second one, it says, I'll write on them the name of my God. What does that mean? So similarly in the church of Philadelphia, that same pillar, if you were quite an important man, where they would write your name, they would also write the name of the gods in the town. So Jesus reminds them that he says, but this pillar is not just a normal pillar where it's your name and a random God. It's going to have the name of the one and true living God. It's going to represent who you belong to, and that is God himself. And the third promise is, um, I will put the name of the city of God. And this promise is just highlighting permanent citizenship in heaven. We've read scriptures where we talk about how we are ambassadors of heaven, but Jesus is saying, now you will be permanent citizens of heaven. And the last promise is, I will write on them my new name. And here's the reality. None of us know what the new name is. 
Honestly, we don't. We don't know what the new name of Jesus is. Jesus has over 250 titles. But the beauty about this is it's indicating how the Bible has shown us that when people are given new names, it indicates a unique relationship with God. It also shows that Jesus Christ is or was our mediator, is our redeemer, the captain of our salvation. And he is the authority that we did what we did right here on earth. Would you please stand with me? In summary, when we, if we look at this church of Philadelphia, we just see how they did, they, they did one thing right. And that is why this morning we just spent talking about that one thing. And that one thing was simply obedience. That's all they did right. And what I did was I, I went back, I, I, was, I was curious. I wanted to see what actually happened to this church in Philadelphia. Where are they now? And when I was reading a lot of stuff and just doing research, I found out that Around the 1400, um, that entire region was obviously invaded by the Turkish people. And people say that the church in Philadelphia was actually the last church to fall. Every other church fell hundreds of years back. The Philadelphian church was the last church to fall. And I like to believe that in the eyes of men, you know, the Bible says this church was seen as something that was little. I like to believe that people saw this church and said, ah, this is such a stupid church. This is such a small church. But I believe, but when Jesus looked at this church, he said, that was my success story. And that is my prayer and that is my dream for Outlook Church. I really feel and I really believe, I don't want Outlook to to be like a church like Sardis, where we have this beautiful reputation, where we're such an amazing church. But you find that Jesus says, but you're dead on the inside. I believe and I want us as a church to have a reputation where Jesus looked, looks, us, look, look, looks at us and says, carry on, you're doing a good thing. And that is the dream that I have for each and every one of us. But then just before I pray, the, the reality is, you know, it's, it's so easy to talk about Jesus and we talk about all this flowery, cool stuff. But this promise, this verse means nothing. If Jesus Christ himself is not your Lord and he's not your savior. Sometimes what happens, once again, when you're talking about the guardians of the gospel, we sometimes lean towards savior and we forget to make him Lord. The Bible tells us he has to be Lord and savior. So this morning as I pray, I will be praying for, for basically a, reded- a rededication in our hearts where Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is savior. And similarly, a, re- a rededication in our lives where we live lives that are obedient to his word, where we live lives where we are obedient to his command. Father God, thank you so much this morning just, just for your word. Thank you so much for, for examples that we see in the Bible, just basically this church in Philadelphia. Father, I pray for each and everyone this morning, Father, that for people that know you, but they just know your name, but they have never taken a step to make you their Savior, to make you their Lord. For people that have never done that, Father, I pray that you soften their hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you love them. Father, I pray that you give them a revelation of who you are. Father, so that this morning that they can repent, that I can repent, so that we can repent, forsake our old lives and dedicate our lives and and choose to live a life of following you. Father, I pray for us as Outlook Church. Father, I pray that we are a church that are continuously obedient to your word, continuously obedient to your command. 
And Father, I just pray that we are reminded that once again, that when opportunity comes, it looks like obedient. So Father, I just pray for each and everyone this morning that we get this revelation that when opportunities come in our lives, that we don't see them as a nuisance, but we see them as an opportunity that you, Lord Jesus, have opened for us to walk in through so that we can be able to glorify you. Father, I pray in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Awesome, Chaz. Thanks so much for your message. And uh, one thing that stood out to me is here in sunny South Africa, our currency is the ZAR, the, the Mandela's. Currency of heaven, currency of the kingdom is obedience. That's what it's about. We operate in the currency of obedience. And so I really do pray, Chair's prayer, that uh, this word would touch your heart this morning, that you would continue as a church to be obedient to the things that he has called us to be obedient to. Amen.